Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Almost two years ago, on the 8th of December, 2020, something happened which touched the lives of billions. The mass vaccination programme for COVID-19 starting this week marks the beginning of the end of the pandemic. The first woman in the world to get the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, 90-year-old grandmother Margaret Keenan. Today is a great day for science and humanity. Millions of people had been dying and the pandemic, which had shut down the world, showed no signs of abating until the invention of new vaccines. And we got them astonishingly quickly. The race for a vaccine has been the biological equivalent of the moonshot. This is the news that we've been waiting to hear. Pfizer and BioNTech reporting the vaccine showed to be more than 90% effective. In labs around the world, scientists got the first through clinical trials in less than a year. One reason why we got the first vaccine so quickly was because the technology was already being trialled in a cancer vaccine. Now, BioNTech, the company who created the first COVID vaccine, is returning to its original mission. Can they come up with a vaccine against a disease that around half of us will get and one in six will die from? Can they cure cancer? We believe that this will happen definitively before 2030. Now the COVID-19 vaccine and our experience in developing it gives back to our cancer work. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, could a jab cure cancer? I am Tom Whipple, and I'm the science editor at The Times. I am finally writing about things that aren't viruses, although we're going to be talking today about vaccines, so I haven't moved that far away from COVID in some senses. Well, we've missed you, so welcome back. (laughs) Tom, we're talking because of an amazing innovation, we think, that's on the horizon. Tell us a bit about what might be coming down the road in terms of cancer? Well, this is this is all prompted by Ua Shaheen and Uslem Turechi, who are the husband and wife couple who created BioNTech, the German company that partnered with Pfizer to make the coronavirus vaccine that I think probably almost everyone listening to this will have had at some point in the past three years. They think that by 2030, we should have cancer vaccines. This has caused a tremendous amount of excitement, although it's not actually that 
surprising to those in the field, but it comes with all sorts of caveats. This isn't them saying there will be a cure for cancer, and it's not them saying that you will have something like the measles vaccine that means you don't catch cancer. It's a very different thing and a very different kind of vaccine. We'll find out more about how these new vaccines would work in a moment. But first, it's worth remembering how we got here and the methods that have been tried in the past. So, pay attention. Here's Tom, our in-house expert, with a brief history of cancer treatment. And it goes back further than you might think. So they used to say there were three pillars of cancer treatment. There is cut, there is burn, and there is poison. For the first 2,000-odd years, we just had cut. Hippocrates spoke about using surgery to remove cancer and how that sometimes worked. So that's much older than I'd, I'd realised. I mean, Hippocrates knew about it. In fact, cancer comes from his observation of the crab-shaped vein patterns you get around some tumours, crabs, cancer, obviously we know from astrology. We gained another tool at the beginning of the 20th century. We discovered radiation, and a lot of that obviously caused cancer. There was a brief fad in the 1920s for radium parties where people would drink glow-in-the-dark cocktails, which sound like amazing parties, but obviously the aftermath wasn't brilliant. But as well as causing cancer, there was from very early on, there was investigations as to whether you could cure it using things like focused x-rays to burn away at the tumours. So that was burn. And then there was finally poison, which is chemotherapy. It has its own origin story. During World War I, um, mustard gas was used on troops and scientists found that when they were treating these troops in hospitals, one of the interesting things that they found was that they had very, very low white blood cell counts. So there was a suggestion that maybe this could be used to treat cancers of the immune system, to basically just deplete the, the cancerous cells. And then that became the impetus for using a suite of essentially toxins that stop cancers from dividing, which is, of course, something we use up until this day. I think anyone who knows someone who's been through cancer treatment knows that this is a, this is a real brute force method. The, the only reason why we put up with the treatment for cancer is because the cancer itself is so bad. But there is an alternative history of cancer that you could imagine, because at this time, there was a doctor called William Coley, who was fresh out of Harvard Medical School. And he was given a 17-year-old girl to treat who had got a bone cancer on her hand. And they amputated her forearm, but it didn't work. The cancer spread through everything and she died. And he was clearly deeply affected by this. And he combed the literature for treatments. And he found these odd instances of people who seemed to have cancer go into remission after having infections, different bacterial infections. And also he found cases of doctors observing that syphilis patients were less likely to get malignant tumours. He found all in all, he found 47 instances in the literature, these anecdotes of people getting infections and then surviving. And he had this theory that somehow the infections reawaken the immune system and help you fight off the cancer. And he was ignored. But uh, 
He was right. And it's, it's only since really since the 1990s, or particularly actually since the turn of the millennium, that we started seeing these immunotherapies. And they do all sorts of things. We've got clever therapies called CAR T-cell therapy, where you take out the T-cells, which we're all familiar with from COVID, part of the immune system, and you tweak them so that they can then attack cancer cells. Uh, that you can do that? You can do that. You can do that. And we use these. But so the, the interesting thing about these is, these were all very complicated treatments, and, and no one would think of defeating measles by genetically engineering T cells so that you could attack them. You just no. use the use a vaccine. So the idea of a vaccine has been incredibly alluring for this period, and we've had false dawns. One of the most fascinating stories is a guy called Ralph Steinman, who was an extremely eminent immunologist, he discovered these things called dendritic cells, which are these spindly spiny cells which present proteins to the immune system and tell the immune system what to attack. In 2007, he discovered he had pancreatic cancer and it was stage four. I would have viewed it as a death sentence. He viewed it slightly differently. He viewed it as, well, I've got nothing to lose. And so he decided to conduct his last and greatest experiment. The cancer was removed. They knew it would come back, but it's removed. And he sent slices to all of his mates in laboratories around the world. And they decided to make every experimental treatment they could, including three different cancer vaccines, all of them based upon his research into dendritic cells. Now, he wanted to take these sequentially so that they would know which had worked, so that he would get decent data. He wanted to publish a paper on this. He was experimenting on himself despite, despite the obvious deadline. Yeah, his paper was going to be called My Tumour and How I Solved It. Wow. And he should have died in the first year. He didn't. He saw in the next spring. He saw in the spring after and the spring after. But in 2011, he was riddled with cancer and he died. And, you know, the, the problem is you can't tell from the data of one person what, if anything, prolonged his life or why. But there's this coda to this tale. His family didn't initially tell people that he'd died. And three days after his death, his grieving wife went downstairs to the kitchen and she saw his blackberry blinking and she picked it up and idly read the message. And the message was that Ralph Steinman had won the Nobel Prize. And they, they don't give Nobel oh. Prizes posthumously, but they made a exception for this one because no one knew he had died. And he was three days from knowing he'd won. He was three days from knowing. That really is poignant. So, Tom, talk us through how these vaccines will work. Are we looking at a, a cancer-free future in a few years' time? We are not, alas. We are looking at another tool in our arsenal. I, I think it would probably make sense to explain exactly what a cancer vaccine is and also, importantly, what a cancer vaccine is not. So your body spends a lot of time defeating foreign objects that turn up into it. It attacks viruses, it attacks bacteria, it attacks cells that look like they're where they shouldn't be. Some of those cells are cancerous cells. So cancerous cells are perversions of your own cells. They're cells that have mutated in certain ways and then keep on mutating uncontrollably. And your immune system is able to spot them as unusual and 
quite often it'll be able to defeat them. But obviously, half of us get cancer in our lives. So th- this this fails. Um, and it fails because cancer has ways of getting around your immune system. One of the big advances in cancer treatment, particularly the past 10 years, actually, is immunotherapy. It's finding ways to boost your own immune system so that your own body attacks the cancer. Now, one of the things that's weird about this is, in in other ways, we're very used to boosting immune systems to attack things. That's what the COVID vaccine is. That's what a smallpox vaccine is. But for cancer, we haven't used vaccines in that way. Um, I know people listening to this will be thinking of the HPV vaccine that teenage girls get to prevent cervical cancer. That's because cervical cancer is caused by HPV. So it's still an outside agent, effectively. So it's still an outside agent. You're not talking about attacking your own cancer. But there's this this marvellously alluring idea. What if, when you get a cancer, we can train your body to attack it just as we would train it to attack a pathogen? So what if we could find a pattern of protein on the outside of cancer cells that only exists on the outside of cancer cells in your body? And then we give you a vaccine which trains your immune system to see that pattern as being the pattern that marks an invader and then attack it itself. You do away with all of the need for all of these other terrible things, the chemotherapy, the radiotherapy, the surgery. Instead, your body just attacks it and attacks it in a targeted fashion and job's done. You've got rid of cancer. So that's a simple idea. And that's been the simple idea for a while. And it turns out that when the simplicity of a simple idea hits the fiendish complexity of the immune system, you end up with things not being quite so simple or so easy. Ah. And in in terms of this great new innovation, I mean, was this on your radar before COVID? This is the reason why BioNTech existed. Ur Shaheen and Uslam Turechi, they met as doctors on a ward treating cancer patients around the turn of the millennium. We are physicians by training. And when we were young, we were treating patients, oncology patients with advanced cancer. Most of the times we had to tell our patients that there was nothing we could offer them. And we could only endure these sad situations because we were leading a double life. By day, we were working on the cancer wards and in the evenings, we were working as scientists. They got married and then went straight back to the lab in the afternoon after getting married because they had an idea they didn't want to just do the traditional cancer treatments. They wanted to develop the cancer vaccine and the tools that they thought they could do this with were mRNA, messenger RNA. So there's this thing they call the central dogma of molecular biology, which is DNA makes RNA makes protein. And that basically explains how a body works at a very, very fundamental level. Uh, In your body, you have, in every cell, you have DNA, which is the instruction manual. It's code. Now, an instruction manual is completely pointless unless you can read it. And this is sort of what RNA does. The DNA makes this molecule called RNA, which is a messenger. So we call it messenger RNA in this context. And this travels then to the place in the cell that makes proteins, and it gives the instructions for how to make the proteins. And the idea of mRNA therapies is that if you impose your own message, if you stick your own little snippet of RNA into the cell, 
then the cell will instead make the thing you want the cell to make. So back in the early part of the 2000s, a lot of people were looking at cancer vaccines and a lot of them were trying to find a common protein. So something that would always determine what it is to be a pancreatic cancer. And so you find this and you make a general vaccine if people have pancreatic cancer, you stick that in and your body attacks pancreatic cancer. The real advantage of mRNA is because it's just this little string of code, you can make it personal. You can look at someone's individual cancer and everyone's cancer is different. And you can find the the proteins on that individual cancer, which are the ones that make it different from your normal cells. And then you can tailor that to the individual people. You give them the vaccine and lo and behold, their body attacks it. So this is what was happening. And this is what BioNTech was set up to do. And about 2019, there were a lot of these mRNA companies and there was a lot of hope for them. There were billions chucked into them by investors, but very little was happening. There were no therapeutics. And a lot of people were talking about an mRNA bubble and the idea that mRNA had just run out of steam and wasn't going to happen. But actually, by the end of 2019, they had just done enough research to make mRNA work. And in January 2020, Ur Shaheen, he read about this pneumonia in China and thought, I'm going to turn my cancer company into a COVID company. And that is how we got the Pfizer vaccine and a similar story for the Moderna vaccine. Coming up, how would cancer vaccines change the future? But first, a quick word from a colleague. I'm Kat Lay, health editor at The Times. Our health coverage spans everything from how the way we live can raise or lower our risk of diseases, to advances in medical treatment, to the problems facing the NHS and their potential solutions. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Tom, you've set out this amazing history, and it's only when you talk about radiation and chemotherapy as sort of burning and poison that you realise just how brutal our treatment of cancer is. So even the false storms in the past, you can see how much hope they bring. Take us back to BioNTech and what they're hoping to achieve now. Are they specialising in particular sorts of cancers, or is this a, a blanket potential vaccine? The technique is 
blanket. But they're looking at particular cancers. They're looking at the cancers that we're very bad at treating. One of the first studies they've done, and this is a very small study, was into pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer has a very, very high death rate. Um, We haven't improved really at all in our treatment of it. And one of the things it does is it, it sort of builds this barrier between itself and the world outside. So it's very hard for immune cells to get at it. What they did was, in in a trial that was published over the summer, involving only 16 people, they gave those 16 people, so it wasn't a control group, they gave those 16 people this treatment, which was a personalised cancer treatment for them, after the surgery. So the the tumour had been taken out, and then the concern is you've got these floating cancer cells that'll find somewhere to land and then start growing and dividing. And what you want to do is find a way to destroy them when they land. The goal that we have is to ensure that directly after surgery, patients receive a personalized vaccine and we induce an immune response so that the T cells in the body of the patient can screen the body for remaining tumor cells and ideally eliminate the tumor cells and thereby reduce or completely inhibit the metastatic relapses, which would come two or three years later. So they were given this personalised cancer vaccine, which was made precisely for their cancer cells. Now, in eight of the 16 people, and this is why we have to be very clear that this isn't a panacea, their T cells did not respond to the vaccine. The vaccine did not work. And in eight of those 16, either the cancer has come back or 18 months later, they were dead. In the other eight, 18 months later, the cancer was not there. And for those who work in pancreatic cancer, that is utterly thrilling. I mean, it's, you know, if you or I or anyone was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and someone said, well, look, you've got a 50% chance of surviving this, you would consider that terrible odds until you knew what the the previous odds were. They're now trying a far larger trial in bowel cancer, but these things are finally looking positive. And now researchers are really looking to bigger trials to see what happens, but they're already thinking this is going to be another tool among immunotherapy and another tool among cancer treatment in general. So this really could be a game changer. And as, as you say, so this, this is in addition to surgery. This isn't the sort of vaccine that you get given at a certain age and it just means you'll never get cancer. This is when you've already been diagnosed and you've had some form of treatment. This would hopefully stop it coming back. Yeah, and that's why I guess we slightly don't have the right words for this because we think of a vaccine as preventative medicine. Mm. And in this context, a vaccine is something that trains your immune system by presenting it with the thing you wish it to destroy. It's part of the cure. It's not preventive. Ultimately, this is you know a, a semantic question of, it's a question of language, what you call it. But this mechanism is the mechanism of a vaccine. The way it's used is different from the way that a lot of people might understand the word. Obviously, the BioNTech team are, look, are focusing on these two cancers at the moment. If it does work, and they are able to extend this to other forms of cancer, could this be a proper game changer? I think we have to be careful about the word game changer because the days when we talk about a cure for cancer are long gone. We realise that, you know, cancer is cancer is not one thing. There's lots and lots of different diseases that behave in different ways. But, I mean, the 
people I spoke to, one of them described it as he, he thought this would be the centerpiece of immunotherapy. It would definitely be a way of, in some cases, as with the pancreatic cancer, saving lives. In other cases, preventing some quite unpleasant treatments. And in other cases, just providing reassurance. You know, there are plenty of cancers you get where there's lots of screening afterwards and you're, you're sitting there thinking, is it coming back? Is it coming back? And certainly the first use cases of these will be ways to make it far less likely that the cancers come back. And you could imagine a situation where we get to the stage where people have the surgery, they have the cancer vaccine, they have their blood tested to see if the T-cell response is there. And if it is, you say to them, look, you don't, you don't have to sort of celebrate each birthday now. We, we are pretty sure that this cancer is not coming back. And for those for whom there isn't a T-cell response, you maybe say to them, look, we, we've got to keep up the screening program. Yeah. And for the team behind it, this must be quite a moment if this is something they've been working on for years and this was always the reason they set up BioNTech. I mean, you've, you've met the couple. What are they like? I've interviewed them three or four times, I think, during the course of the pandemic. They're lovely. They're driven. They are very into their science. I remember the first time I interviewed them, they were living in an apartment. The family was in a sort of two-bed apartment and they, they were billionaires. They, they hadn't got round to, uh, <laughs> to moving. I suppose they'd become billionaires overnight, really, in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, the next time I interviewed them, they were in a far larger house. They were they were on Zoom in different rooms, and they were just in these sort of big empty rooms, I think, not quite knowing what to do with themselves, but having recognised it was absurd to stay in an apartment. And BioNTech aren't the only company who are working on, on vaccines. Just give us a sense of the bigger picture. I mean, what else is on the horizon? Moderna are looking at it. There are several other companies, I think CureVac are. Um, there's also the Oxford guys who are looking at developing theirs. So I, I think, you know, there's going to be lots of companies looking at this space, particularly if we continue to get good results. And the vaccine technologies that we have developed in COVID um, have all been accelerated to the point where this is going to, I think, be a lot easier. We have learned how to better, faster manufacture vaccines. We have learned about a large number of people, how the immune system reacts towards mRNA. And not only we, also regulators have learned about mRNA vaccines and how to deal with them. So this will definitely accelerate also our cancer vaccine. There's going to be far fewer questions. You know, as an investor, you're no longer thinking, what's the side effect profile of Pfizer? We understand it extremely well, and it's extremely good. And you're not thinking, well, can this stuff be made easily and stably? Can it be made at scale? Because we know a lot now about making this and storing it and using it. So I think it's fair to say that the pandemic has accelerated this kind of technology, if only by shining a spotlight on it and just showing that it works. Finally, a plus. Um, <laughs> and... Before we get too optimistic, you know, your history of the treatment of cancer does point to lots of false storms too. I mean, what are the chances that these vaccines won't work? I think now it's unlikely that the vaccines won't work. But, um... I mean, where are we in terms of a timeline? 
Um, I think I think 2030 is perfectly feasible. But what I wouldn't want people to take away from this is that that means we will have cured cancer by 2030. What the history of cancer shows is, yes, that there are false dawns, but also that when we have progress, it is incremental. We slowly find ways to do things better. And cumulatively, you can make a really big difference. But if we continually think when we get this then it will be sorted then we are going to be disappointed we are not going to suddenly wake up on the 1st of january 2030 and think right that's cancer that's done and if we do get these vaccines by 2030 you know you talked about them being personalized which sounds expensive will will they be affordable we don't know how much they're going to cost. What you're touching on here is a broader point, which is in lots and lots of different ways, we're now getting personalised treatments. I think the NHS is going to have some quite hard cost-benefit calculations, but all of this technology is getting cheaper. It's getting cheaper in part because of the pandemic. The kind of genetic sequencing and synthesis technology that is needed is something that has dropped three, four, five orders of magnitude in cost in the past 20 years. So yes, it will be pricey, but treating cancer is always pricey. Let's wait and see, but I suspect this will prove to be economical. And Tom, you've said this isn't a cure. It would just be another tool in the armoury against cancer. If we do get to the stage, though, where those tools are, are so effective that cancer is no longer killing us in the numbers that it is at the moment. What will? Well, we'll die of Alzheimer's. Um, <laughs> we will die. What, what people are excited by is the idea of treating old age itself as a disease and perhaps finding ways of, well, at the extreme end of science, of, of immortality, but the more reasonable end of science at keeping people alive a bit longer, but keeping them healthier even longer. We want to find ways to keep people so that they're sprightly and their, their limbs are working and they're bouncing about the place. And we'll need all sorts of different technologies for that. And, and if they do, if these vaccines do work, I mean, is this the start of, you know, vaccines for a whole host of other diseases? There are certainly other things that are potential uses for mRNA. The simplest are using them to make other kinds of conventional vaccines against conventional diseases. Universal flu vaccines or Lassa fever. Might technologies like this be useful in making even an HIV vaccine, which has evaded the, the world for 30, mm. 40 years? Once you can hack the body, which is essentially what you're doing, then there are lots of possibilities for what mRNA can do. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the Times science editor, Tom Whipple. You can find all of Tom's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. The producer was Olivia Case. The executive producers today were Kate Ford and James Shield. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode, if you found it useful, if you learnt something from it, then please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. 
See you again soon.